Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock episode number 90 for Saturday, February 12th, 2022. I'm your co-host, Ken Gagney. And joining me as always, well, actually not as always, because we have a special guest today sitting in the co-host seat. Please join me in welcoming first captain of a transport shuttle, Tiffany Bridge. Hello, Tiffany. Hey, Ken. How are you? I am great. I'm so glad to have you back on the show. You were here to talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 2, which seems like forever ago. And here you are back to talk about Prodigy, Episode 6 through 10, the second quarter of Prodigy, because I'm told that the first season is 20 episodes. So this is the second quarter. So Tiffany, for those who didn't hear you on our Discovery episode all those ages ago, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am, um, I work in tech during the, during the day. And, you know, in my life, I have a, uh, a wonderful eight-year-old boy and, um, we have been watching Prodigy together. So, um, I have uh, a lot of feelings about this show that I'm really excited to talk about. Well, that's fantastic. And I have to say that you and I used to be coworkers on different teams and I miss that we're no longer in the same company, even though we were on different teams, it was always great to know that I could just DM you at any time with a funny dog picture or whatever. But I'm glad that we still have Star Trek to bring us together. The grand unifier. The grand unifier. I do miss your DMs. It's true. <laughs> I will have to kick up my texting game. I'm sorry that I've been remiss at that. <laughs> yeah, get better at that. I'm, I'm working on it. I, I just got a new iPhone. I moved my phone numbers around. Everything should be much more streamlined and optimized now. I tell you, these these com badges, I just haven't gotten the hang of it. It takes me a while, you know, this new tech. But So you said that you have some parental opinions about Prodigy. Have you been watching this with your kiddo? I have. I have. We um, started watching it. We've been watching it week by week with him. And, um, you know, it's fun because, you know, he's eight now and he's getting to the age where we're no longer watching like those insipid like little kid shows, right? Like we're out of the Paw Patrol phase, thank God. And at first I was kind of skeptical. I'm like, oh, Nickelodeon, Star Trek, like, how's this going to go, right? But he's getting to the age now where like the stuff that he likes is actually kind of engaging for us. And we're starting to be able to introduce him to the things that we loved as kids, so Prodigy has been actually a really great experience for us. Would you have watched this show without him? You know, I I don't know if I would have given it a chance without him, but I will say that now having watched it, I don't care whether he's interested in it or not. Like, I want to watch this show. I will watch it with <laughs> or without him now. That's awesome. Like this most recent episode, he actually was kind of like delaying. Like he was like, oh, I don't feel like watching that. And I'm like, I need to know what happens. Like I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Was he too cool to watch it with mom or what? No, I think, you know, he is, he's a kid and he just like his, his attention span isn't always like, he's not always like hanging on the edge of the seat about the same things I am. And, um, and he's also, you know, he's kind of a sensitive kid. And so like when, when storylines get a little bit intense or there's like danger, sometimes he's like, I don't really feel like watching that right now. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we waited and we waited and finally he watched it with us last night. Cause otherwise I was going to, like, I'm like, look, you're going to watch this 
or but I am watching it. Like I don't care if you do or not. And um, but he uh, he sat down and watched it with us last night. It was a lot of fun. So do you think he would watch it without you? Um, I think he would, but in our house, we try to like, we try to watch these things together as much as we can. Yeah. And this show, you're right. It can get a little intense. The bad guys are especially bad, particularly what's his name? Dreadnought, the robot dude. Yeah. Dreadnought. Yeah. I mean, he's like legit terrifying. And there's like, you know, there's moments where he like kind of creeps up on somebody like that's a lot, like that's a lot for me. And uh, <laughs> so it can be like, I'll definitely get a lot of, I can't look from my son. Mm-hmm. Have you previously tried to get your kiddo into Star Trek? Oh gosh. We have watched um, like, we'll get on these like Jags of like binging, like TNG and DS nine. And um, he'll kind of get into it actually. Like he like like TNG is kind of soothing for him a lot of, you know, cause it has that kind of like chill, like workplace vibe a lot of the time. Um, so he, he did get into that with us for a while and he's less into DS nine though. I feel like DS nine is more mature material. So, so that's okay. Um, that he's less into that. Um, but so yeah, this was, but this was like the first thing that was like really targeted toward him. And, um, he really glommed onto it very quickly, which was great because like we had just grown out of like that terrible little kid show phase. And then all of a sudden he was like really into prodigy and Lego Masters, and both of those things are things I would watch with or without him. That's awesome. So I have also been watching Prodigy. I am child-free by choice, so I have no excuse. I just watch it for myself. And I have enjoyed it. I thought the first few episodes, I think a lot of people didn't really like the main character much, but I think Mm -hmm. that was intentional because it gave him room to grow. And I think especially in the latest five episodes, which you and I are going to be talking about, We've seen more of that. What's What's been your impression of some of the characters on the show? And I think that's right on. I think, um, you know, like the Trek that we grew up with, you know, the original series and, and um, TNG in particular, I think were really kind of constrained um, into like the conflict always has to be outside of the characters. And so the characters were never really given that freedom to grow um, in the same way. Whereas something that I really appreciate about this one is that like, the characters are growing and that's the entire point. Like that's the entire like narrative arc of the show is that the, these kids, because they're kids are kind of learning and growing and like figuring out how to be a team and figuring out how to be friends because they're all so terribly traumatized that they haven't had the chance to like learn to care about each other yet. So I love that aspect of it. And I feel like if I were going to pick any of our known Starfleet captains to put in charge of this group, like Janeway is definitely the one I would pick. So um, I love seeing like Janeway in the mix as a hologram. Um, so I've, re- I've really enjoyed all of that. And I've really enjoyed um, my favorite one. The one that I want like a figurine of to put on my desk is Rock. Why Rock? It's hard to say. I think it's because she has that like sort of delightful mix of like that really like literally in her case, like hard exterior, but she's really very soft hearted. And um, I just think that's very compelling right like she's very she's just she loves animals and she just wants everyone to be friends um but then she like also learns to be this amazing amazing engineer um which is something we'll talk about but um she's my favorite i just love her yeah there are five episodes you and i are going to be talking about there's kobayashi where Mm -hmm. 
Dal goes into the holodeck and goes to the Kobayashi Maru. There's first contact where they have the Ferengi and they're meeting with the sand people. There's time amok, not to be confused with the TOS episode, amok time, where mm-hmm. kind of like on an episode of Voyager, they were all fractured across different time dilations, I suppose. And mm-hmm. then there was the one and two part finale, uh, such as it is, a moral star. So I think what you're referring to is in time amok, Rock had enough time completely isolated at a very slow pace compared to the rest of the ship to spend as much time as she wanted. And so she studied and she read and she learned. And whereas previously she was just the ship's muscle and she was Mm -hmm. kind of frustrated by being pigeonholed in that sense, she taught herself everything she needs to basically be a ship's engineer. And that was a really neat way to evolve a character. We've seen people like Picard and O'Brien spend 30 years in their minds and come out pretty much the same for it, except for maybe knowing how to play the flute. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was a really neat way to evolve Rock's character. Well, and then like that great callback to that, that we got in, um, in the 10th episode where she's just, she very casually just sort of explains to, to Jenko what to do. And he all of a sudden was like, you know what? New plan. I'll hold the door and you do all that. (laughs) And then she completely like completely reboots this spaceship that she has only been on for like 10 minutes Mm -hmm. and, uh, and does it with the help of like the adorable blob that has been following them around all season. And um, yeah, I just, I loved it. I have to wonder what the purpose is of having two engineers, like how will rock and Jankum do we really need them both? I mean, you know, it's interesting because like one of the things that I think they kind of jettisoned in favor of making this a more kid friendly show is that like, there's just so much less of like the reversing the polarity of the tachyon flow. Like there's just so much less of that in this series, which I personally find find refreshing. Um, So it'll be interesting that now they've got two engineers, which you would think would mean like way more polarity reversing. Um, so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where we go. We do know that there's this horrible like weapon buried in the protostar. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows it's there. Gwen doesn't remember. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that happens because now we're like they're headed to star to Starfleet, and the real Janeway is like running to meet them. I will say that the um, that bit where Rock becomes like an engineer over the period of time in that episode kind of reminded me of um, Palm Springs, that movie with Andy Samberg and Christina Milotti. I've seen it. And she, you know, Christina Milotti's character, like basically teaches herself. I don't remember. Was it like theoretical physics and time travel mm-hmm. over the course of while they're stuck. So it was like shades of Palm Springs there for me. I was reminded of that movie because just last week on Groundhog Day, I rewatched the movie Groundhog Day. You get to see Bill Murray, eventually take advantage of the time he has available to him to make himself a better person. He learns to ice sculpt and play the piano. And I'm thinking to myself, gee, if I was caught in a time loop, I think I would eventually, well, either go mad or take advantage of it like he did. And we got to see rock make that same decision. Yeah. I thought that was really beautiful. You were talking about Janeway and how she's the perfect person for the ship. And I hadn't thought of this before. You said of all the captains we've had, I'm trying to think of myself what other captains could fit there. Like Picard generally doesn't like kids with a few exceptions, like maybe Wesley Crusher. Cisco, like 
yeah, he's a great dad, but I don't see him coddling all these whiny brats. Uh, you're right. They're like Archer, Jonathan Archer. What would he do there? Kirk would be a terrible influence. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like you can't oh, no. put him anywhere near them. <laughs> I don't know that William Shatner would even take that part. I know he wants to come back to Star Trek and he almost did on Voyager, but yeah, that'd be a stretch. Well, you know, in Kobayashi, like they got all of these like all-star characters back without actually getting any of the actors, all of whom were dead. Except for Beverly Crusher. Except for Beverly Crusher. Yeah, they brought in Gates McFadden to record some new lines. What did you think about that scene and that gimmick? I mean, I, I, I mean, here's the thing. Like, obviously, I love this idea of like this like Trek dream team people in your ship um, during like a Kobayashi style test. I think that's like, that's very cool. Um, And it's a great way to sort of introduce kids to the greater universe that the show is part of, but putting my adult hat on for a second, I am really uncomfortable with all this stuff that's happening now where we're like taking actors, previous performances and like running them through AI to continue to like extract new performances without actually hiring the actors to do the work. I cannot say that I'm a fan of that trend at all. Are we doing that with actors who are still living? Because I know we did it in Star Wars Rogue One, but that actor was dead. They uh, they did it in Boba. They did it in the book of Boba Fett, where they, instead of having Hamill come in to record Luke's lines during the episodes in which Luke appears in this, in this, in this season, um, they ran old like recordings of Hamill through an, through an AI and had the AI like basically imitate his voice that I did not know. And like Mark Hamill's voice does not sound like it did when he was 19. Right. So, okay. But also gross. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. In this particular scene, I love what you said about the dream team. It reminds me of the game, Star Trek timelines, which I've never played, but has a similar concept. I love that. This is something that they can only really get away with in animation because mm-hmm. it would be much more effort to actually bring those characters to life. Uh, and also, Sabriel and I had just finished watching the TOS episode Balance of Terror, which I'd never seen, and which some of Spock's lines were drawn from. I was like, I just heard that line yesterday. I know what that's right. from. Right. But at the same time, though, I, although I love the idea, I question the execution in two ways. One, some of the lines just didn't fit. It felt like they were really mm-hmm. shoehorning them in. Yeah. And the the other is, I can't remember ever seeing Odo at the helm of something before. Odo wasn't in Starfleet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that he went on away missions on the Defiant. And nonetheless, I don't remember him ever being at the helm. So that just seemed like an odd place to put him or mm-hmm. an odd person to pick to put there. Well, and that's the thing, because it's it felt like that you know, aside from Beverly Crusher, they were almost purposely choosing actors who weren't available, and that also felt a little gross. Like, okay, Spock, sure, I'll give you that one, but like Ohura and Odo, like really, that's that's I mean, Brent Spiner is right here, y'all. <laughs> He's right here, right. And they also they had Scotty, so they had Spock, Ohura, and Scotty, and Odo. I mean, you could have more generational mm-hmm. representation. You could have had Travis Mayweather at the helm. Right. Right. Frakes. Frakes is always around. It's not hard to get Frakes. No. I mean, he's been on Lower Decks. He's been on Picard. What's one more? Right. 
Right. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. Like on one hand, it was kind of nice to see some of those characters together, but on the other hand, I, I, I didn't, and just like knowing about like the IP issues involved and like how much of this was done to avoid like spending budget on, um, on actors. And, and that may not be like the, the, the immediate fault of like the writers of the show or anything, right? Like those, those budgets get decided at a much different level. And there's probably a lot of money being spent on the animation, which is beautiful, just beautiful. So, you know, maybe there really just wasn't budget to hire the real actors. Um, But it did kind of like (laughs) the way that they kind of went out of their way to pick mostly the dead actors kind of distressed me. Yeah. Tell me more about the animation. You are a fan of it? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, the the galaxy is the most beautiful it has been, I think, in any Star Trek series. And the way that uh, just like the nebulas and like all the stuff that they're, I mean, it's just much more beautiful than um, because, you know, the other ones are live action. And so they're expected to look a, a particular way, right? This one is just, it's just very beautiful and soothing. Um, the ship itself is gorgeous and it's got that sort of like gleaming, um, that gleaming quality that you really appreciate from like discovery without being in the dis- in discovery's timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's just very, it's very beautiful. I'm a big fan, particularly of the opening sequence of every Star Trek series ever. It's one of my favorites because I don't think there's any other Star Trek opening sequence that really captures the sense of just how fast you can go in a starship. Right. Right. Yeah. I love the, uh, I love the opening credits here. I love that the theme is like, they didn't like kidify the theme. Like this is a legitimate, like Star Trek theme. It, you know, musically it fits in with the other themes. They didn't like, they didn't give it like a kid theme with like lyrics and like, like this like super driving beat. They gave it a legitimate Star Trek theme. And I feel like that shows a lot of respect for the families who will be watching this show. Right. It's like, no, we're here to make your kid a Trek fan. We're not here to like pander to you. We're here to make your kid a Trek fan. Yeah. Even with that hint of TOS theme at the very end, they tie it all in. Yeah. Absolutely. Going back to Janeway being the, the captain, as we saw in the second moral star part episode, she is upgraded with the ability to physically interact with her environment. And when we first saw that, I was like, yes, that's amazing. I felt almost the same way as when Ramona Flowers stopped Scott Pilgrim from being kicked in the face by evil X number four. (laughs) But but at the same time, I thought, wait a minute, holograms physically interacting with their environment is not a new thing. Why wasn't Janeway built with that capability in the first place? You know, that is a great question that I honestly, truthfully, just did not stop to ponder at the time because I was like, I was just so ready for the catharsis, right? Like I was so ready for the diviner to get his. Um, so no, that's a that's a good question, though. It kind of feels like it, it, you're right, though, because like the doctor did eventually like was eventually able to leave the sick bay. But even before he got his hollow emitter, he could still interact with people. Like I remember there was one particular scene where he said to Tom Paris, hit me. And so Tom Paris went to slap the doctor. His hand went right through the doctor because he's a hologram. And then the doctor, without missing a beat, slapped Tom Paris and it hit him right in the face. And the doctor's like, see, I can control the transparency of my photons at will. 
Though I do want to just appreciate the the verisimilitude of making a hologram Janeway that has to have her coffee. <laughs> like materialize the coffee cup in her hand. Like that just mm-hmm. that attention to detail. Like good good job, Starfleet. Really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And I also liked so I, I think it's in Star Trek timelines that they just announced they hired Kate Mulgrew to voice a mirror universe version of Captain Janeway. And I feel like we got a little hint of that in a moral star when she was. Yeah. Temporarily the evil Janeway. Yeah. I like the, the, it wasn't just that she was now monochrome. It was also the tenor of her voice. Like it was just dripping with disdain. It was, mm-hmm. she was, she was so good at it. It was so subtle and so good. And I really enjoyed that. Well, I think, um, I think Kate Mulgrew is just generally underrated, right? Like, I think she just deserves to be in way more things than she's in because everything she's in, she just walks away with it, right? Like, Orange is the New Black. Come on. Um, she is. Uh, she deserves to be in all of the things. I admit I haven't seen Orange is the New Black. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head that I've seen her in besides Star Trek is an episode of Cheers. Really? Yeah. Well, in uh, Orange is the New Black, she is uh, a prisoner in the the prison that the story centers on. But she's kind of like she kind of has this. It's a similar role, right? She's kind of like the ringleader and slash, you know, sort of surrogate mother to a bu- to a bunch of like unruly girls. And um, it's she's delightful, but she has like this very thick Russian accent. I don't want to say anymore because I think you should actually watch at least a couple <laughs> of episodes of it because I think you'll enjoy it. But if for no other reason than for Kate Mulgrew. I did see some sort of a commercial a couple of years ago before Prodigy was ever announced where like Voyager went back in time to early 21st century Earth and they f- saw Orange is a New Black and Captain Jane was like, is this my long lost ancestor or something? <laughs> it was very strange. It was like the first time she had played Janeway since Voyager went off the air in 01. So it made waves for then. At the, for that time, and now, of course, she plays it every week in Prodigy. Sure. You know? I got some other characters I'm curious about on this show. What is up with Murph? Who or what is Murph? I, you know, I've decided that Murph is just short for MacGuffin. Um, I'm okay <laughs> with that. Like, I'm okay with that. Like, it's a kid's show. They need an animal sidekick. And he, he basically does not serve any purpose except for, like, one really critical purpose, right? In a moral, st- in a, name of it, a moral star. And, you know, of course, like, so they've just kind of, like, set his abilities up very quietly. And then he just wanders around being, like, the adorable comic relief right up until he is needed. And I think that's that's what's up with Murph. I mean, we don't really know what species any of these characters are. It's true. But I can't help but expand what we're seeing here into the larger Star Trek universe and think to myself, if there really was an alien race that is indestructible, somebody would have found a way to weaponize that by now. Well, we don't know that they haven't, right? Because they're over in a quadrant of the galaxy mm. that we haven't spent any, really any time in. That's true. And and that's why none of like and that's why we don't recognize any of their species, right? Because mm. all of the kids have been taken away from their families, their home, their home worlds, whatever. And so like they don't have any context for who or what they are. And so for all we know, like Murph is part of um, like unknown species 10 for all we know. Could the Borg even assimilate Murph or would the nanites just pass right through because he's indestructible? <laughs> right. Or he just like swallowed them. 
And if they could assimilate him, then the Borg could be indestructible, and that'd be horrible. Exactly. Like, so we absolutely cannot risk it, right? We cannot allow the Borg to make contact with Murph's homeworld, <laughs> whatever it may be. No, no. I did find it interesting that Murph could contain a protostar because stars are incredibly dense. And for that much stellar stuff to fit into Murph, he would do more than sink like a rock. Like nobody would be able to pick him up. Right. Like how can anyone carry him at that point? Right. Exactly. So this is one of those moments of suspension of disbelief because this show is meant for eight-year-olds and eight-year-olds don't know how dense stars are, generally speaking. Right. I mean, what I'm going to tell myself is just that it's a very, very tiny fragment. Right. Right. I mean, that makes sense. Extremely tiny. I, I want to speak a little bit about Dahl, but also I think my favorite character on the show is Gwyn. Oh, uh, I, f- I feel for her. Yeah. I just... Why is that? that? Is your father also an evil emperor? Uh, no, my father is not an evil emperor. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I feel like just the entire idea of being like, a, you know, a young girl with a very demanding father. Um, and trying to kind of pick your way at like, as like, it's, it's really, I mean, and I think as all good kids shows are a really kind of metaphor for the entire process of coming of age, right? Eventually you have to individuate and that can be very hard and very painful because, especially when your dad is like gaslighting you all the time and like, you know, he is, but at the same time, he's your dad. I just feel like that's a really, and that's like really heavy stuff to show to kids too, right? Gwyn's dad is not like a good dad with a problematic past. He's a terrible father, mm-hmm. but she loves him anyway because because that's who he is to her. And um, I think so. I just like I feel like just a lot of like not necessarily like personal identification, but certainly just a lot of like having been a young girl, like individuating from my own parents. Um, you know, I just, I kind of like, I feel seen by the journey. Yeah. I think Star Trek is doing a really good job lately of helping its audience be seen in its show mm-hmm. of representing more lifestyles. Like I think it speaks a lot about the generation of people who are making Star Trek now that, Hey, sure. let's make a character with a dysfunctional family. Right. Right. I mean, granted, to a, to a degree, we certainly had that in TNG. I mean, Deanna, Worf, they all had dysfunctional families. But mm-hmm. I think it's more relatable nowadays. Yeah. Well, I think people want different things, want to see different things from their TV shows, right? We always joke that like TNG was basically like sort of a, a light workplace comedy, really, that happened to take <laughs> place on board a, a spaceship. And um, I think people are just looking for a little bit more kind of emotional depth in the characters now than, than they were mm-hmm. um, when, when we were kids. And I think that's, I think it's partially just like a kind of a cultural change. Like there's a lot more TV now. And so, you know, people are, we're kind of competing for attention more, but I think, but I think you see that, like, like you said, in across all of Trek right now, like look at discovery, like discovery is the same way. The characters, there are much more, like their emotional lives are drawn in much higher detail than they were of the Trek of our youth. Yeah. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why in the end I do like doll, even though a mm-hmm. lot of people don't. And I, maybe this was an overreaction on my part, but the first 10 minutes of a moral star part one, that's where the whole crew comes together to decide what they're going to do. 
if they're going to go back and save all the unwanted or not. And they all almost unanimously agree, but Dahl just storms out of the room. And Gwyn goes to him. Gwyn, who an episode or two earlier, he wouldn't even admit to having saved. And he says, we can't go back there. We can't get caught. And at first you think it's because he doesn't want to give up his newly found freedom that he's wanted all his life. But instead we find out it's because he says, if it was just me, I'd go in a heartbeat, but I can't risk losing all of you. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of reminds me of the end of the movie, the Incredibles. It's a a very similar sentiment where your greatest weakness is the people that you love. And it's Mm -hmm. also your greatest strength. Sure. And then we see Dahl, who has been running away from Starfleet, turn around and embrace it. And he puts on that uniform and without coronation, it turns out everybody else did too. And they all step on that bridge wearing these uniforms that we've never seen before. And Janeway changes her uniform to match. And Dahl says, let's go fast. And then you see that same close up of the hull that you see in the opening sequence. And that whole thing just, this is for me, what star trek is about it's not about it's not just about exploring space new civilizations new galaxies it's also about striving for not just a better tomorrow but a better us about overcoming our fears and our weaknesses and our pettiness and coming together to do what is best for humanity and for ourselves and for each other and i feel like because prodigy started with this fractured immature crew we got to see that happen in real time as opposed to in tng where we just say oh we eliminated war slavery and poverty hundreds of years ago we're done with that right this is in a way the birth of the federation what we're seeing these kids on the protostar doing Right, because we start out in a place where there very much is war, slavery, and poverty, right? And then it becomes like, can we take these people who started from, like, you know, our TNG friends have, like, they've lived in a post-scarcity society for generations, but here are kids for whom this stuff is not theoretical. Like, this is not just a thing that happened hundreds of years ago. This is their lives. This is their trauma. And they have to come together and, like, be what Starfleet you know, wants to already be. And like, it's not just a nice set of ideals to them. Like this is survival. And I think, you know, to your point about people not liking Dell, like, I mean, I, I mean, yes, he's annoying at the beginning, like he's annoying and selfish, but you know, he's a kid. And as like, as an adult looking at a literal child behaving this way, when thinking is like, okay, well this is, this is a deeply traumatized child who's never had anybody to teach him any better. And, um, and, you know, and they've all had that, right. And they've all got their unique personalities, but all of them are kind of selfish in their own way. And because why wouldn't you be like, what else have you ever, like, what else has ever served you in your life other than looking out for yourself? Because obviously no one was looking out for you. Yeah. If I was one of these kids and I was suddenly given an environment that had a food replicator and a holodeck, I would park that ship in an asteroid and never come out. Right. Like, why would you ever do anything else? Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why I really like this show. And I love that they're coming together as a crew. I love the plan they put together at the end to smuggle the actual lowercase p protostar off the Mm -hmm. ship. And then, like, as soon as the diviner is out of range, they're like, okay, we can stop acting now. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I one of the things I love about this show is that like it's not like dumbed down. Like it's streamlined and the main characters are made younger. But this plot that we're seeing like would would stand up like if they were adults in live action, right? Like you could absolutely you would not have to change very much about the show at all to make this work in, a, in one of the other Trek shows. Huh. I hadn't thought about it that way. Right. Like they've, like they've dropped like all of the reversing the polarity business and things like that. But if you think about it, like five, like five or six, like traumatized ex like mind slaves find a starship and then have to figure out what to do with it. Like that's a that's an amazing like bottle episode of any other Star Trek show. Yeah, and I think we saw that there was a T and no DS Nine episode where they found a ship crewed by kids, right? Does that ring a bell? No, but maybe I didn't. I'm not as detailed on T on uh, DS Nine, so maybe. I thought it was called like the Cadets or something. I do a quick Google search. Uh, yeah, here we go. It's the episode name is Valiant. Season six, mm-hmm. episode 22. The summary is fleeing a Jem'Hadar attack aboard a runabout. Jake and Nog are rescued by a defiant class ship crewed by overeager red squad cadets who are biting off more than they can do. I was just say, so yeah, like to me, this feel, the show and the plot and everything just feels very much like of a piece with the rest of Star Trek. And that's what I mean about it. Not kind of like talking down to your kids. Like it's here to make Star Trek fans out of your kids. It's like they made a Trek show for kids they didn't make a kids show that just they just sort of threw into the star trek universe if that makes sense no actually that makes a lot of sense i hadn't thought of it that way they came from a place of trek that makes perfect sense where do you think they're going with this because so originally i thought prodigy was only going to be 10 episodes because that's what lower decks did and then i found out it's actually 20 episodes so i guess we're only halfway through this season it's on pause right now and we're going to see discovery and then next month we see Picard. And then in May we see Strange New Worlds. But I guess there's going to be more Prodigy. And it's still going to be technically be season one, if I understand correctly. We know that for some reason, Dal and Gwyn didn't turn their backs to zero in the holodeck. They just turned 90 degrees away. And so as a result, Gwyn saw a reflection and forgot the important stuff. So now they're going to Starfleet. We know that Starfleet is going to them. We still don't know why the protostar was buried in an asteroid for like 18 years and why Chakotay was on it and where he is now, if anywhere, and why Janeway's memories were erased in a language that only Gwyn knows. And also Gwyn and her father are apparently time travelers. So there's a, there's a lot going on here. We have a lot of loose ends. Yeah. Where do you think about what, what do you think about where we left off and where we're going? Okay. Well, so here's the thing. Like we've already seen the destroying the Federation plot in Discovery, right? So I don't know. I, I, I'm hoping they don't spend like all of their time with, um, okay, like the weapon in the Protostar has gone off and um, the Federation's in a shambles and now we have to piece it back together. Like, I hope they don't do that. Um, but we are going to have to contend with that. And it seems like we're going to have to contend with that fairly urgently. I'm wondering if what is happening with Janeway kind of running to meet them is that it gets Janeway's ship far enough away from the rest of the Federation that the weapon can be identified before it can affect the rest of the Federation. So there's that, right? It seems like we've dealt with the diviner with a certain amount of finality 
But at the same time, he's just kind of hanging out in their holodeck out of his mind. And, so, and I can't like. I thought they left him on his prison planet. Oh, I see. I felt like they had put him on. They had put him in the. Uh, they had put him in the holodeck with like the, you know, with his program that shows like the end of Solon. Um, hmm. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong about that. Um, so maybe he's not on the ship. Maybe he's on the prison planet and we don't have to worry about him anymore. But at some point, like we now, but now we do know like that there is this other planet where Gwen is from. So are we going to, are we going to meet them? Are we going to find out where all these kids are from? I'm hoping we get that eventually. I want to find out like, um, who, like what species are they? Do they have families? Like, are they looking for them? I don't know. Um, so, and then, yeah, like you said, like there's that whole, like how did the proto star get there? Are we just going to like take that as red and move on? Like, it's hard to say because like, I would be looking for all of these threads to be unpicked if this show were discovery. But since it's for kids, I'm not necessarily sure that all the things that I'm noticing that I have questions about are necessarily going to be like the main narrative thrust of this show. I can see how there might be more hand waviness in this show because it is mm. for kids, but there are still some, I think you can only get away with hand waving on the smaller, the finer details, the big stuff like, mm. Hey, Chakotay, like that was one of the last lines in oh, yeah. the last. Well, you don't we like saw. drop a name like Chakotay and then not plan to pay that off. Right. Like, right. It, we're not going to forget about, you can't forget about Chakotay. I was impressed that a former Maquis officer became a Starfleet captain. They, Starfleet's awfully forgiving that way, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and as we saw on some recent episodes of Discovery, all you have to do is ask somebody to join Starfleet, and they're in. They don't even need to go through the academy. <laughs> yeah, they're, just, they're, they're just in. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've always kind of played, like, Trek has always played a little bit fast and loose with, like, the conventions of an actual military, right? Because if you think about it, like, would Burnham ever have gotten to be the captain of Discovery after the stuff she's pulled of course not. You know, in the the J.J. Abrams Trek movies, like, that <laughs> Kirk basically, right? Like, how quickly does that Kirk become captain of a starship? Yep. That is, and not just any starship, the flagship of the fleet. Come on. Yes. And he gets to keep it. <laughs> right. Right? Like, it goes from being, like, a field commission to, like, a real commission, like, after what? I mean, granted, it was a pretty spectacular mission, but come on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's... Trek has never found itself to be overly concerned with the bureaucracy of, of a military organization. Because <laughs> that stuff's boring. One thing about them going back to Starfleet, though, even if they do encounter the real Janeway in an isolated environment where this so-called virus can't permeate the rest of Starfleet, how can the real Janeway discover the protostar as being helmed by five kids and let that status quo remain. Like, how, how does this show continue once Starfleet becomes aware of the protostar? I mean, do we get then, like, real Janeway instead of hologram Janeway as their tra- training officer slash captain? Does she, like, let them stay on the ship but, like, bring in some of her own people? The only thing I can think of is that this virus somehow makes the protostar on. Unusable by Starfleet. Like if it if if they integrate it into Starfleet systems, it'll take the whole thing down. So they have to leave it alone. But nonetheless, that still leaves the question of why would they give it to these five kids instead of like destroying it lest it fall into the wrong hands? 
The only thing I can think of is if they don't destroy it is because they think it can help them find like we, what did happen to Chicote. We don't know. Oh, so kind of like how the holes, all the seasons of the X-Files is trying to find out what happened to his sister. We're just going to spend the next seven years trying to figure out what happened to Ch- Chicote. Do we think this show is going to get seven seasons? Yeah, I don't know. Picard, I recently found out, was always intended to only run for three seasons. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of where we are now, right? With TV is like people have like a very particular, um, like a very set arc in mind for their uh, for their shows, right? Like, and I think that's ultimately, I think that's for the best, right? Because um, when you have to make seven seasons of television, like every episode cannot be a winner. Um, whereas if you're only trying to make, if you're only trying to tell like three store, three seasons worth of story, that's like a three act structure and you can, you can like say what you came to say and then get out before it starts to become repetitive. And yet, isn't the Simpsons still on the air? Would we say the Simpsons has not become repetitive? <laughs> I don't know. I stopped watching it decades ago, well, which see, is not a show. Point. Yeah. That's not something you can say about many shows that you stopped watching it decades ago. Right, because like I remember, like when I was in you know high school, my English teacher was talking about what great incisive social commentary The Simpsons is, and like maybe it still is, but I'm not still watching it. No, no. Well, on the other hand, Discovery got renewed for a fifth season. That was the other big announcement recently, beyond mm-hmm. just the start dates for Picard season two and Strange New World season one, and Discovery being renewed for a fifth season did what no Star Trek has done since I think maybe 98 when Voyager got renewed for a fifth season. Like no other Star Trek has run as long as Discovery. And we don't know how many more seasons it might run. I hope it runs Mm -hmm. at least seven. Well, I think uh, Discovery is probably driving a lot of uh, Paramount Plus subscriptions. So Mm. maybe Prodigy not so much. Yeah, maybe not. And well, and it's also, I think generating, primetime content if they need like a mid-season replacement or something mm-hmm. so um i think that's i think there are probably like very good business reasons for continuing to run discovery one thing i will point out though is that unlike d space nine voyager enterprise and discovery prodigy is not named after the ship that is true they could lose the protostar and it's still Star Trek Prodigy. Right. It could just continue to be the story of these five kids. Right. They might end up on another ship entirely. They might, Starfleet might say, we're going to take back the Protostar because it's advanced tech that we can't lose. But we admire what you've done. And here's a shuttle craft. I don't know. I mean, they did it for Scotty. Sure. So who knows? Well, and you know, the funny thing about... Um, about this, like this protostar um, technologies, we know from other episodes, uh, from other shows that like the dilithium dependency is a real problem, right? Like dilithium is really becoming sort of a metaphor for fossil fuel dependence, right? It's mm-hmm. tearing holes in subspace. It's going to destroy everything, but also we're very dependent on it. And, you know, with the spore drive, like one of the big knocks on early discovery was, well, if the spore drive is so great, how come every ship doesn't have it? And then, you know, Discovery went and answered that question. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we see as Discovery progresses that, like, the spore drive is really very much part of their hopes for freeing themselves from dilithium. Well, again, like the Protostar, it's advanced tech. Where this show is in the chronology, we know that by the time Discovery rolls around, they're not all running around with Protostar cores. 
So that's another, I mean, so that's another question is, is like what happens eventually to the protostar that makes it in, uh, infeasible for yeah, no, ships to have it to have that tech. Yeah. No matter what propulsion you choose, there is seemingly a questionable source. Like discovery started off with tardigrades. Mm-hmm. Stamets did unauthorized DNA manipulation on himself to make himself compatible with the spore drive. Mm-hmm. So neither of those things would scale for Starfleet. And then you have dilithium, right. which people are running out of, and you have protostars and how many protostars are out there for you to just capture and put in a sh- ship. So, mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And how many different ways can we come up with to make dilithium still the, still the thing that we're all running around in our ships with? Yeah. One thing I will say, though, is that out of the five episodes you and I were going to be talking about, we did not talk at all about first contact, which maybe there's a reason for that. I, you know, here's the thing. I wish I, we could have spent more time with that one hmm. because, you know, I feel like the that was, to me, that's the episode where it became most like a kid's show, right? Um because it didn't really get into like the complex ethics of a first contact situation. It just kind of went straight into like a very like low level moralistic lesson. And I don't necessarily think that's bad. Again, this is a show for children, but I really like as an adult, I wanted more from it. So I don't know if that's necessarily like a fair criticism, but um, you know, like I, I'm always here for like, give me the complex ethics of the prime directive, right? Like give that to me. And, um, and you know, that's just a lot, like, that's a lot of nuance. Like my eight year old is not ready for that level of nuance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't find it as substantial. Uh, maybe unlike you, I didn't think about ways in which it could have been more substantial. I thought it was interesting that we learned that doll was raised by a Ferengi who sold him into slavery. Yes. We previously saw him on that planet that was made of living plants that were pretending to be his parents. And he clearly has mm-hmm. a strong desire to know more about them and yet he didn't have any connection really to this Ferengi Uh, maybe he doesn't long for her because he knows who she was but but then he still like gets duped by her you would think like why would you ever trust another word out of her mouth yeah did he not see how she behaved when they lived together or like literally the fact that she sold him into slavery (laughs) yeah or maybe he was obviously younger then maybe he just wasn't aware Mm mm-hmm Sure. Yeah. So that one, I mean, I thought the, the species that they, um, that they introduced in that episode was very beautiful and, um, kind of appealed to that, like my aesthetic admiration of the show, but I didn't think it was the strongest episode, but I feel like I have enjoyed like these 10 episodes so much that even calling that one, my least favorite is still not like scathing criticism, right? Like it just, it was the one that was most like a kid's show for me. And like, and that's okay, because it is actually for children. That's true. And that's one of the reasons why I brought you on the show is because I think the show is targeted more at people like you and the people in your life. Right. I can understand why my co-host, Sabriel, has chosen not to continue watching Prodigy because she wasn't taken by it. She wasn't as pulled in as she is with other Star Trek shows. And that's sure. fine. All Star Trek shows are of not just different quality, but also for different people. That isn't, and she, and I agree, that doesn't make it any less Star Trek. It's just not for her. And that's okay. Yeah, totally. So first officer, Tiffany, 
I think we've covered everything we had to say about this quarter of Prodigy. Is there anything else that we didn't bring up that we should have? You know, I think we something that really struck me about just a couple of these episodes is the 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 little bit of like genre bending we were getting, right? Like the time amok was I think just classic Star Trek storyline, right? I mean, that is like that episode in particular could have happened in any of the other shows and it would still have worked with minimal with minimal changes. Um, but then you switch to a moral star and like you kind of get like Star Trek heist film. And uh, and I love a good like heist movie. So I was really into it. Um, and then, of course, you get like the job goes awry and they have to recover. So I think I've, I've been enjoying like the, the play with the different kinds of stories they're telling as well. I think that's a, that's an important thing to watch for in future episodes. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see how the show evolves, how the characters evolve, and I am here for it. And I, you know, I think Sabriel said that she only watched it to begin with because it had the name Star Trek on it. And it's hard for me to say if I would have picked it up if it was just a generic space show because sure. I don't pick up new shows that often and if it was advertised as being for a younger audience, I don't think that would have made it more appealing to me, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, they named it Star Trek. I started watching it and I'm hooked and I'm excited to see what happens next. Yeah, I am too. I I mean, I love that they really sat down and thought about like, okay, let's like the, like the kids who grew up with Star Trek have their own frequently have their own kids now and they want to show Star Trek to their kids. But the existing Trek canon isn't like, it's not kid unfriendly. And then, you know, these were, these shows were made to the standards and practices of like nineties primetime television. Right. So like, it's not that it's kid unfriendly, but it's not like the most engaging necessarily for kids in 2022. And so they really went and tried to make like a Star Trek show for families. And I, I love it. Like I love, um, you know, kind of being, being seen that way by uh, by the things that I love. So, Yay. So, Tiffany, do you have any online presences you want to share with our listeners? You can find me on Twitter. My handle on Twitter is Tiffany, just Tiffany. So twitter.com slash Tiffany. You can find me there. Fantastic. And there will be a link to that in the show notes at transporterlock.com. First Officer Tiffany, it's been so great catching up with you. Thanks for having me on, Ken. It's been a real pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. 